At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. We eagerly wait with anticipation for the return of Jesus, when He will make everything wrong right. In a way, He's always reigned over all things, but on the other hand, His saving grace has received pushback and rejection from the evil of this world. Join us in our new series, Thy Kingdom Come, His Reign in Our Lives where we'll learn what the reign of Jesus truly means for us believers and how we, as the body of Christ, can continue spreading his name until he returns. I think for the most part, for most of our lives, we like to live uh, acting as if spiritual forces or darkness, things that we call demons or demonic, are not actually real. And yet, from time to time, we encounter things in our life that sometimes seem unexplainable, apart from some sort of supernatural reality. Richard Gallagher was a trained psychologist and psychiatrist at the New York College of Medicine. He wrote an op-ed article in the Washington Post about seven years ago entitled, As a Psychiatrist, I Diagnose Mental Illness. Also, I Help Spot Demonic Possession. He recalled in that article how when he was working as a psychologist in the 80s, he was reached out to by a Catholic priest that he knew to give him a medical diagnosis on a woman that the priest was working with. Gallagher went in to deal with the woman, and as he did, he began to encounter things in her that were completely unexplainable by his medical training. She seemed to have intricate ability to know the certain way people died, even recounting Gallagher's exact way his mother had died, although they had never met prior. In her trances, she would speak in multiple languages that she would no longer be able to account or did not speak outside of the significant moments. And as he dealt with her, he began to realize that there were things that he were deal- was dealing with that was beyond his medical training. He notes in the article that his first encounter there was, this was not psychosis. It what was, I can only describe as paranormal ability. This would lead him on a journey to work with many others as a consultant for the Catholic Church who would deal with the reality of demonic possession. In the article, he makes this, he poses this question at one point. He says, is it possible to be a sophisticated psychiatrist and believe that evil spirits are, however seldom, assailing humans? Most of my scientific colleagues and friends say no. But careful observation of the evidence presented to me in my career has led me to believe that certain extremely uncommon cases can be explained in no other way. Before you dismiss Gallagher as a quack, note that he is actually a professor. He's board certified. He studied at Princeton, Yale, and ultimately has his doctorate for Columbia. So we're not dealing with someone who's in your average academic standards. And yet he forces the question, what do we do with these things that we encounter that seems so beyond the natural, and at times so evil, that they force us to question, are there really entities and spiritual forces at work in our world? Like I said, we often try to ignore this reality, or we suppress it. We try to explain these things away. Or worse, 
What we actually do many times is try to entertain ourselves by them. I don't know about you, but if I have to see one more advertisement for The Exorcist, I'm going to freak out. I already told you I hate scary movies. Evil scary movies are that much worse in my mind. But we entertain ourselves with these things. Heinous depictions of evil and reality. Things that seem beyond our natural. But I think if we're honest, there are things that we encounter in our lives that are so heinous and evil, so unexplainable, both in the personal and in the global, that we're often left wondering, are there dark spiritual forces at work in our world? I mean, when you hear stories like you hear of what Hamas has done in their activity, you're left questioning. This seems beyond human capacity to treat other people this way. When you hear of school shootings or heinous acts of violence against human beings, you're left wondering, how, how could someone do that? Is there evil that I don't even understand? And what we often do is we try to look for rational reasons, but we, all, we find ourselves unable to explain it. Why? Why are we so prone to ignore these realities in our world? Well, I think we have a couple reasons. One, I think because deep down we actually fear these realities. We fear that there could be dark spiritual forces in our world that are beyond our control. And we love the illusion of control, don't we? That we're in control of our lives and we're in control of our world. And it's unnerving to think that there could be powers and influences in a spiritual realm that are beyond our control. So we ignore it, we suppress it, we entertain it. We look for natural explanations. And yet, Scripture calls us to be mindful of those very realities in our world. The Apostle Paul would write to the church in Ephesus, and he would remind them, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Paul reminds the church that ultimately what we see and what we engage is not simply human, but a supernatural, powerful entity that is at work to cause destruction in our world. That's what our battle is against. And yet we suppress it. We ignore it. And again, because I think we often feel helpless and impotent in the face of that reality. To acknowledge it leaves us in the place that we feel like we're doomed that we're left to succumb to the powers of darkness that are around us, and if we're honest, at times within us. So what do we do? What do we do with spiritual darkness? Well, this morning, we're going to encounter a story where Jesus engages spiritual darkness. We're continuing in our series, Thy Kingdom Come, where we've been studying how Jesus ultimately initiates and begins to bring the kingdom of God to bear through his ministry and ultimately through his death and resurrection. And as he does, he encounters various situations and scenarios where the kingdom of God encounters the kingdom of darkness. And this morning we're looking at that story, that encounter, in one such person. And I think as we do, you're going to see some significant things about the reality, not only of spiritual darkness, but how Jesus can help us as we face that in our lives and our world. So let's jump in and we'll kind of unpack the story as we go along. Mark 5, chapter 1 begins, or Mark 5, verse 1 means, They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of 
the Gerasenes. Now remember, we left Jesus last week. He was teaching in, along the Sea of Galilee. He left and told his disciples, let's go to the other side. They had traveled across by night. In the middle of the night, they encountered a massive storm that threatened to drown them. Jesus stood up, spoke over the wind and waves, and brought them calm. Mark now continues the story to note that Jesus now comes to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus left the primarily Jewish side, teaching in Capernaum, and now has moved into a region called the Decapolis, which were 10 Gentile cities on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee that Jesus now approaches and wants to go to. Mark notes that, and when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. So Jesus shows up on the shore, his feet barely hit the beach, and there's already this man here. And Mark notes that this is a man who's actually under the power and control of spiritual darkness and spiritual forces. We've already encountered a person like this in the Gospel of Mark. In Mark chapter 1, Jesus encountered a demon-possessed man in the synagogue. But this time, it's different. This is different area, different territory. And actually, as you're going to see, this encounter is amplified. But as Mark notes this encounter of this man and Jesus, he pauses and gives a really extensive description of the man's reality. Now, this is really uncommon for Mark. If you read through the Gospel of Mark, I told you before, he's the gospel of action. He is action-oriented. His favorite word is immediately. And if you read his stories, his stories often don't have a lot of embellishment. They're kind of the key details, and they move. And Jesus is on the go in the Gospel of Mark. It's like this, and then this, and then this, and then this. So it's odd then that he stops in this encounter to actually give a detailed description of this man's reality in relation to him having an unclean spirit. I actually think it's significant because I think what Mark wants you to see in this man who's under the control and power of spiritual darkness and spiritual forces is the reality of ourselves and our world that falls under the power of spiritual darkness and forces. Mark highlights three significant things about the man. One of the first things he notes is in the reality of being under the control of spiritual darkness, he experiences spiritual destruction. He's not just told that he's demon-possessed. Mark will use that term later in the text. But we're first introduced to the man that he has an unclean spirit. Now, to be unclean was to be significant. In Jewish thinking, that was to be cut off, unable to engage the presence and reality of God. So this man has a spirit that's controlling him that actually keeps him cut off from God. And actually Mark layers all the descriptions of this man with the ideas of being unclean. In the Old Testament, you were unclean if you touched a dead body. Where does the man live? Among the tombs. You were unclean if you had an open wound and were bleeding in the Old Testament. What does the man do? He cuts himself and bleeds. So Mark notes that under the spiritual power and forces that control this man, he is in, on the path of spiritual destruction. He's cut off from God. Not only that, he's experienced relational destruction. He's cut off from his community. He wanders the mountains and the tombs, crying out. At some point, it seems that they tried to bring him under control. That didn't work. And so he was left to wander by himself alone and cut off from others. Not only that, under the power and control of these spirits, he experiences self-destruction. 
self-harm and mutilation. His spirit is wrenched, his body cut. And what Mark portrays is a man of absolute desperation and hopelessness. The spiritual forces at work in his life cannot be bound. No one can bring him under control. He has no hope. What Mark portrays from the get-go is this is a man pictured as the lowest of the low, completely under the power and control of evil and spiritual darkness. And to be under the control of spiritual evil and darkness is to bring a destruction in our lives. It's to cut us off from the source of life and destroy what God created to be good. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And that's exactly what this man experienced. But in this man, I also think we get the picture of, and the reality of the plight of our world and our lives under spiritual powers of darkness. Scripture is clear that we generally suffer under evil's power in two ways. Some experience what this man experiences, the absolute control over their lives. What we would note as demonic possession. That evil has such control that the will of the person has actually been overtaken by spiritual forces of evil. But scripture also warns us of the influence of evil powers. That although we might not all experience control, we all experience a world where the dark spiritual forces that stand against God and his kingdom seek to influence us. And as they do, they seek to bring the very same destruction in our lives and world. And this is what our world's marked by. Spiritual destruction, cut off from life, cut off from the reality of God, experiencing the flourishing reality he designed us for. Relational destruction, not only in wars, but even in personal relationships, constantly battling hostility, division, anger, even its extremes in murder, harm, self-destruction. Where evil seeks to rob us of our true identities and our true understandings and purposes, such to the point we despair even over self and our realities. And our world is desperate for deliverance. I mean, I've said it to you before, but it's true. Just think, 5,000 years of human history, all our technological advances, we've made very little progress in dealing with the sins and evils that plague our lives and plague our worlds. We live under delusion because we like the idea of control, But if we're honest with ourselves, we're dealing with the same problems. They have fought in the Middle East for thousands of years. And people are fighting everywhere. We've done very little to deal with the human predicament that lives under the power and control of evil and spiritual forces. Well, that might be our reality. I think there's actually good news, though, in the presentation of this man. Like I said, Mark presents him as the lowest of the low. So if Jesus can do something for this man, certainly he can do something for you and me and the world that we deal with. And maybe you're here this morning and you recognize those realities at play in your life. I think what you're going to see in this man is a lot of hope for how Jesus can engage wherever you're at and whatever darkness you might be facing. So how does this... How does Jesus actually engage this man in his reality of being under the powers of darkness? Well, I think we're going to see three ways that come in the text. 
So note then Jesus' engagement. He gives us the strict description in verse 6. He picks back up Jesus' encounter with the man. He says, And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. Now, what you're going to see in this interplay is Mark wants to highlight the control that God, or the, I'm sorry, that the demon actually has over this man. So at times it's as if the man's speaking, and other times it's as if the demon is speaking. It's, it's to highlight the controlled reality that he really is under that influence and control. And Jesus, immediately as he encounters the man out the boat, Mark nates the note that the reason the demon gives this response is because. Jesus, from the moment he encountered him, had been calling the demonic spirit to come out of the man. And the demon responds to Jesus. What do you have have to do with me, Jesus? Now, that's an interesting phrase. That's actually a Hebrew idiom. It, It kind of means, why are you interfering? Or maybe if we put it in our colloquial context, it's like the man says to Jesus, hey, mind your business. Like, don't, don't come mess with me. You stay, I'm good. But what's interesting is, even as he acknowledged Jesus, even as he kind of gives this rebuff, hey, don't interfere with me, he acknowledges who Jesus is. And he uses a really interesting phrase. What do you have to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? That term, most high God, is a term used in the Old Testament to describe Yahweh, the God of covenant with Israel. You see, in the Old Testament, the term that we often translate God, the Hebrew term Elohim, is simply a generic term for a spiritual being. It's used to describe God that we know, God as we'll see, most high, but it's also used to describe lesser gods that we engage We saw one of those in the Old Testament, the god Baal, when we studied Elijah in August. So it's a generic term. The way that the Jews then would describe their god was to say that he was the most high Elohim, meaning he was distinct among all the spiritual beings, all the lesser gods. Their god was most high. Because while all the other gods were created spiritual realities, God alone was wholly the uncreated one. So the term to acknowledge the son of the most high God is actually an acknowledgement of Jesus' connection with Yahweh and of God's supreme authority over both heaven and earth, over both the physical and spiritual reality. What's fascinating is it's actually also the answer to a question that we left off last week. If you remember, our last story left the disciples wondering, who is this man who can command the wind and the waves? What's interesting is the answer comes on the lips of this demon-possessed man. He's the son of the Most High God. Jesus then engages and asks What is your name? Verse 9. And he replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now, this is interesting. Jesus engages and asks the name for this demon. The demon reveals that Jesus is not just engaging a single spiritual being, but actually multiple spiritual beings. The term legion was used in that day to 
as a military term to describe a group of Roman soldiers, about 6,000. Now, I don't think the term's being used to say there were 6,000 demons, potentially, but I think it's more to reference Jesus is engaging spiritual forces, not just a singular being, the spiritual forces of that area. That's why they say to him, hey, don't cast us out of the country, right? The Old Testament notes that actually spiritual demonic forces influence regions and areas and nations. They're not just personal, they're regional as well. And so what Jesus is encountering is not here just the spiritual forces of one singular man, but the region and spiritual forces that held that area under captivity. And they say, don't cast us out of the region. Don't send us somewhere else. They say, instead, send us to the pigs. Let us enter them. I think in their mind it's, hey, if I can't be in this guy, if I can at least stay in the pigs, I can continue my power and influence that I continue to hold these people under bondage. How does Jesus respond to their request? Verse 13, so he gave them permission. It's an interesting note. Again, catch Jesus' authority here. He's been revealed as the son of the Most High. And here, at their request, who gives permission? Jesus. Why? Because he's the ultimate one in authority. The person that grants permission is the one who actually is in authority over those that make the request. Right? If my kids come to you and they ask you and say, hey, um, can I have some candy, let's say, they're older now, so they might not ask that, but just go with me. What are you going to probably say to them? Go ask your parents. Why? Because you might say yes, but you know and I know I'm the authority over my kids, so my yes matters more than your yes. You say yes and I say no, guess what? My kids aren't getting candy. Recognize the one to whom the request is made designates the one who's in authority here. And Jesus' authority is clear, so he gives them permission. And what happens? Well, the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the seat bank into the sea, and were drowned in the sea. So Jesus deals with them. How? He gives them permission. But Jesus recognizes that what they think is going to happen isn't what's going to happen. Remember, the sea in the Jewish imagination and imagery is the source of chaos. It's connected with the underworld. It's the place where evil originates out from. The Jews did not like the sea. They were land people. And so sea in their imagination references and recognizes where evil comes from. So Jesus says, oh, you think you're going to stay in the land. Actually, I'm just going to send you right back to where you came. The New Testament makes references to angels who are held in captivity under chains until the end when God will deal and judge with them fully. I think that's exactly what Jesus is doing here. You think you're going to exert power and influence? You think I'm going to let you remain? No. My kingdom's here to overturn the kingdom of darkness so you go right back to where you came from and you and wait until I deal fully and finally when I bring my final kingdom to come. And so what we see through all of this is that Jesus is actually working against these spiritual forces that kept the man in uncleanness to deliver him from the power of spiritual darkness. How does Jesus engage the reality of his spiritual darkness and control? He delivers him. Why? Because he reigns over spiritual darkness. He reigns over the demonic realm. He is the one in authority. 
And he has come in his kingdom as the messianic king to overturn the spiritual powers and forces that hold our world in bondage. What Jesus will do for this man by his word, he will do for the entire world by his, the act of his death and resurrection. What actually holds human beings under spiritual bondage? Well, Scripture's clear. It's our sin. Our sin is the means by which spiritual forces work in our lives and in our world. This is why the temptation and the great sneakiness of the enemy from the very beginning of Scripture when he comes to the woman and ultimately then to Adam as well and says, if you eat this fruit, you'll be like God. And so they eat the fruit. And what happens? They don't become like God. They fall under Satan's power and authority. They become enslaved by their sin to the spiritual forces of darkness. And we do the same thing. Our active rebellion against our creator is the means by which the enemy takes control of our lives and our world. But the good news of the gospel is Jesus came to deal with our sin so that we no longer had to live under those powers. Paul makes this point very clear in Colossians chapter 2 when he writes to the church in Colossae and he says, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, you're cut off, right? You're cut off from God. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Paul says, listen, you were dead. You were cut off. You were under spiritual destruction, relational destruction, Because of your sinfulness. But what did Jesus come to do? He dealt with your sin. That which demanded your death, in his death he took upon himself. So that God would no longer mark you by your sin, but he would make you alive. Releasing you from that place of death and bondage. But look what he says next. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So the cross not only deals with our sin, but it actually disarms the very authorities that try to use our sin to keep us under their bondage. This is what we mean. Jesus cleanses our lives. And in dealing with our sin, we no longer are beheld under the powers of darkness. This is why Paul would remind them in the first chapter of Colossians, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. When you trust in Jesus Christ, you are transferred from under the powers of darkness and evil and brought into the kingdom of God, a kingdom of light and life and flourishing and fullness. This is what he does for the man. This is what he offers to the world. And when we trust in him, We experience this in our lives. Our uncleanliness is dealt with, and we're restored in relationship with God. And this man experiences that. But there's a second thing that Jesus does in his interaction here. So he casts the demons back into the sea, back where they came from. But in verse 14, it notes that the herdsmen fled and told it in the city. So obviously these guys who are in charge of the pigs, they see what's happened and they run to tell everybody what's going on. And the people came to see what it was that had happened, right? They're curious. So they come to Jesus. And what do they find when they come to Jesus? It says they came to Jesus and they saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion. 
Notice he slows for a second. This guy, what's he? He's sitting there clothed and in his right mind. I love this. I love the details because I think they're intentional with Mark. Because the reality is not only does Jesus cleanse us of our sin, he actually restores our humanity. Right? Note, the, note the words in contrast to his reality prior to his encounter with Jesus. When they come to him, what do they find? They find him sitting. He's calm. Before he was wandering, aimless, through the mountains, crying, cutting. Suddenly, an encounter with Jesus, Jesus comes and infiltrates his life with his truth, his kingdom, his reality. Peace starts to reign over this man. No longer is his life marked by the chaos of wandering. It's marked by the calmness of sitting. He's clothed. Before he wandered naked, a symbol of his shame under the powers of darkness. But here, his dignity has been restored. He's covered and clothed. And he's in his right mind. He is no longer under their control. He's free. He's free from the powers that held him. He experiences an incredible transformation. And this is the exact same thing that Jesus does in our life when we're willing to bow before him as Lord and trust in his death and resurrection on our behalf. He brings a peace to our chaos. He restores the dignity, our dignity, and removes our shame and guilt. And he releases us from the control of evil forces in our lives such that we're freed to follow his way and pursue his kingdom. This man has been restored by the work of Jesus in an incredible way. And as the group of people come, they encounter it. You would think their response would be, oh man, whatever he's experienced, I need to experience. If this is what Jesus could do for him, certainly I need what he has to offer. But that's not how they respond. Look what it says. They see him sitting there clothed in his right mind, and they were afraid. They have a similar response to how the disciples responded to Jesus' authority before. Remember, the disciples encountered Jesus' authority over the wind and waves, and they were afraid. But this fear is different. We note it. Why? It says in verse 16, Those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And then it says, And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. So they're afraid. They recognize Jesus' authority. But if instead of inviting that into, his life, into their lives for transformation, they beg him to get out. Leave me alone. Why? Because they recognize the kingdom reality that Jesus has to bring and the transformation is, that it offers is actually disruptive to the control that they assume to have. They're like, hold on. What about these 2,000 pigs? That's a lot of money in those days, right? 2,000, that's like, that's no junk change. They're like, they're all drowned in the sea. And they recognize, whoa, 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 whoa. This man isn't coming to keep life the way it is. He's come to change some things. And they much prefer the way life is. You would think they would say, oh, who cares about pigs? This crazy guy that's been in the tombs for the last 20 years is free and right and healed. No, they don't think that. Because they'd much rather weigh have the way they think things should be than actually experiencing the transformation that Jesus causes to bring. You see, to encounter the dramatic reality of Jesus' restoration in his kingdom forces a certain uncomfortability within us. 
because it causes us to recognize the falsehood of our lives and it invites us to either lean in towards what he offers, be willing to release control and actually experience to have our lives disrupted to experience his transformation or it causes us to pull back and resume the control we think we have over our lives. Maybe think of it like this. Because um, I, think, I think we have this natural response anytime we encounter dramatic transformations. So um, there's kind of like a trend. I was just talking to my nephew, apparently. I'm not on social media, but apparently there's some sort of trend right now for people to uh, post pictures on social media of like their physical transformations. Like, you know, I, I weighed 100 pounds and I lost all this weight in three months, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, that's like pictures that are side by side. I don't, I don't know if you've ever encountered those. I've encountered those throughout the course of my life. And uh, I'll be, be honest, uh, in all my encounterings, I have one of two responses. Most of the time when I see someone's dramatic physical interaction or transformation, the thing, I'm, I'm usually initially intrigued, but I quickly want to move on. Because I naturally recognize I'm never going to be like that. That's too disruptive to my reality. I have no interest in, like, not eating ever again and working out four hours a day. Like, I, I much prefer my bowl of cereal at night, right? Like, this is historically, like, our response. So we're like, I, I don't want to look at this. This just makes me feel worse. Or occasionally, though, I've been in the place where it actually causes me to lean in. Oh, man, could I experience that? If they could do it, could I do that? Could, could that be my story. I, I, I think Jesus' reality of transformation and what he offers in his kingdom causes all of us to kind of face that dividing line. We either, like the crowds, experience the dramatic reality, recognize the disruption that it might cause, and we go, nah, I don't want that. I like my money. I like my comfort. I like my relationships. I like my pursuit of sexual whatever. You mean I'm going to have to maybe change and conform to experience that transmission? No, no thanks, Jesus. I'm out. Scroll left, move on. But for those that actually experience the reality of that transformation, and some of us, there's the lean in. Oh, wait. My life doesn't have to be marked by these forces. My life doesn't have to come under the influence of evil. You see, Jesus offers the restoration of our humanity. The problem is we're often more, we're more comfortable with our inhumanity than we are with actually being restored to our true humanity because we want the illusion of control. So what breaks that? Well, what breaks that is when we recognize we're not in control in the first place and that our only hope is actually the authority of another. You see, Mark's going to make the point that even in this transformation of this man, what actually happens is that he's not just freed to a place of self-autonomy. His freedom comes in, his in submitting and surrendering to the authority of Jesus. Because not only does he restore our humanity, he actually then commissions our ministry. And you're going to see this. It's, it's really interesting in the language, so I don't want you to miss it for a second. So they, they began um, to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting in the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. So note the contrast in begging, right? Crowd, experience Jesus, they beg him, leave, get away. This man experiences Jesus, begs him, let me be with him. 
When you recognize the kingdom power transforming, freeing reality of Jesus, you lean in and say, man, I want that. I want to be with you. Right? That, that's the transformation that happens when we put our faith in Jesus. To, to know and experience his power is to come to a place where you want to be with him. I think that's why one of the great questions, if you're wondering about your own Christianity, can just be, do you love Jesus? Like, do you find within your heart a genuine affection for the truth and reality of Jesus? Because if you've experienced this transforming power of his gospel, you will find that. You will find a place in your heart that says, yeah, I love that. I love him. I want to follow him. And that's what this guy has. He's experienced this deliverance, and his heart of discipleship is shown. He wants to be with Jesus. But note how Jesus responds. He begged that he might be with him, verse 19. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So now we encounter a second time of Jesus' permission. So, so Mark's trying to get you to see Jesus didn't lose control here. He's Lord over the demons, but he's also the Lord of your life. He's the one who determines, he's the one who calls. And the heart of discipleship is ultimately to come under his authority, to surrender. That's where spiritual freedom is found. Spiritual freedom is not to come to Jesus so you can discover your own self-autonomy and actualization. That is not freeing. That's just continual bondage under another name. To experience spiritual freedom is to come under the authority of, your, of him, to surrender your life to him, to let him now mark your ways and begin to live for his kingdom. When you live in that, you find the freedom that your heart looks for. It's what you were created for. And so Jesus says, hey, no, 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 no. Your role isn't to come with me. Your role is to go and tell. I wonder if Jesus knows, this is my assumption, it's not in the text, but I wonder if Jesus knows, hey, if you come me, we're going back to the Jewish territory, that's going to be rough for you, but you actually have access to these cities that my disciples here don't have. Like, you have the ability to go into these ten Gentile cities and be a witness that we can't be right now. So he, he knows, he's got a greater vision. So he says, I know you want this, but I'm Lord, so go do this. And he says, go and tell. The idea there is of report. And he says, report two things. What God has done, what God has done for you, and how he has shown you mercy and compassion. He says, go tell your story. Go tell your story of transformation. And in that, let them know the mercy God has shown me, he can show to you as well. This is the power of Jesus. And what happens? The man responds, and he becomes the first traveling evangelist. <laughs> He goes and tells his story, and he proclaims it in these 10 cities. So it's regional, and the people respond with marvel and wonder. They're struck by what God hasn't done. You see, to experience and encounter Jesus in our darkness, to experience his cleaning of our uncleanliness, uncleanliness to experience the restoration of our humanity, to come under his lordship and experiencing his redemption is also to be invited to extend his redemption. Jesus didn't just deliver this man from something. He delivered him for something. And that's true for us as well. That's why Paul would remind the church in Corinth, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. 
The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. If you've put your faith in Jesus, you are no longer under the old world and the old powers. You are now marked by God's new creation reality, which is marked by the resurrection of Jesus, where Satan's sin and death have been defeated. That is now where your hope, your reality is found. All this is from God, verse 18, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So he reconciled, he did something in us, but now he wants to do something through us for others. All um, That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting with us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. All right, Paul's whole point if you experience the power of Jesus, it's not so you can just sit and fold your hands and wait until I get to go to heaven one day. It's that he wants to transform the very purpose of your life to be about his kingdom, that you can extend the hope that you've experienced so that others can experience. You're now an ambassador sent into the world to be a witness to the truth and reality of God's kingdom and his gospel. And so this man exemplifies the same work that God wants to do in our hearts and lives. So what does that look like? How does that actually happen? Well, first, I think it looks exactly like the movement we see in this man. It starts with coming to Jesus. His transformation comes as he comes to Jesus and falls down at his feet to begin. And Jesus then does the work of cleansing him, of restoring him. Right? To come to Jesus is to come to the place of surrender, to recognize your hopeless state under the powers of evil, under the spiritual darkness of this world, to recognize you have no ability, no matter how hard you try, no matter how many religious things you do, to actually clean yourself up, to come to him and surrender and say, Jesus, I need what you have because I don't have it. That's what faith is. Faith is saying, I can't save myself from my sins. I can't save myself from the spiritual darkness that plagues me. So I need someone else to do something I can't do. And Jesus has done that. So you trust in his death for your sins and his resurrection. And as you do that, you experience his transforming power. And as that happens, then you simply report on what God has done in your life. I I love, we have all these things. You, You don't need a professional degree. You don't need to go to seminary. You don't even need to be a Christian that long. This guy's like one day encounter with Jesus and Jesus is like, go tell other people. Why? Because all you have to share is what he's done in your life. That's the most powerful testimony you can give to say this was the spiritual darkness I was under and I encountered Jesus and now I'm no longer marked by that. And the truth of the gospel, friends, the great truth is that when your greatest darkness experiences the power of God in Jesus Christ, it will become your greatest testimony. It will. That's the hope you have. You might be facing darkness today. You might be under the trap of sin. You might be in that place where you're like, I don't know what to do. Come to Jesus. And guess what? If you walk with him, that thing that you think you held in bondage will become the very thing you will declare to others to say, that no longer holds me down. I've experienced the freedom of Jesus Christ. I know what it's like to be under the power of sin. I've told you guys that before. I spent a decade of my life trapped in the lie and power of pornography until I encountered the life-giving reality of the gospel. And I've lived for years now free, never to go back, because Jesus changes our life. 
I've seen addicts set free. I've seen people who've been bound to greed set free. I've seen people who are bound to gossip, who use their language to tear down others and still, to, instead of build them up, turn into the most encouraging people you'd ever met because that's what the gospel does. And when the gospel comes into your life, it will take that great darkness and it will make it your greatest witness. And nobody can deny that. Nobody can. You can give me rational arguments all day. You can try to push me and prod me. I know what Jesus did in my heart, and I will bear witness to that until I die. And when you've experienced that, no one will be able to take your witness from you. No one's going to shut this man up because he's been changed. And that's what Jesus wants for you as well. And that's where we're going to go this morning. I, I, I want to give you a moment to just bring whatever... I mean, I know, I've been a pastor long enough. I know some of you are dealing with some darkness in this room. Some of you feel the temptation and the struggle of the enemy. Some of you are facing sin or fear. You're facing things in your life. And the good news of the gospel is Jesus has power over that exact same thing. And he wants to minister that power to you today. And so we want to just have a moment as we end our service to just give you a chance to be reminded of the power of Jesus. So what was, what was the burden? What, what was the thing you held on to that God might have asked you to release? Because that's the exact same thing Jesus wants to encounter you with his power this morning and then lead you to that place of transformation where your darkness starts to become your greatest testimony. So we're going to sing two songs to close. One, just celebrating the power of Jesus. And we're going to let those words together proclaim the power of him over the darkness of our world. And I, I believe God spiritually wants to free you today. And that just the proclamation of his people, of his power can do that. And then we're going to close back with that song we started with. To come back to that place of surrender. Because surrender is the vehicle by which we experience powerful work of God in our lives is to come under his lordship and to follow him. So God, I just pray right now as we prepare to sing that you would come by your Holy Spirit, visit each one of us, speak the truth of your power and authority over the dark areas of our lives and move us from that place towards greater freedom. So we just invite you to do that now. We give ourselves to you and we pray all this in your name. Amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.